a good buddy of mine, and he's a client also, Julian Robertson. We were a long time ago pulling around the no motor zone, and we pulled right, I was pulling fast to get across the bay, and we pulled right into a crocodile laying on the bottom that we never saw. The crocodile stood up, the boat was thrown in the air, the crocodile bit the boat and shook it. He um, put three holes in the wood hull, ripped the rub rail down in the bow, and uh, my buddy Julian fell out of the boat and on the tail side of the crocodile. We had T-boned him and he fell onto the tail, and his legs got stuck in the mud. So he's trying to pull himself in, the crocodile shaking the boat and hissing, I'm on the pulling tower just trying to hang on. So Julian finally frees his legs, jumps in the boat, and tries to run back where I'm at and get on the pulling tower with me. <laughs> and that's just, you know. So anyways, we I backed up and the croc was pissed and we were a little shaken up, but uh, everything worked out. We pulled over the bank and inspected the boat and we weren't going to sink, so we just kept fishing. Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Orvis Fly Fishing, Traeger Grills, Turtle Box Audio, and Costa Sunglasses. Recently on a trip to Miami, I got a chance to swing by and spend some time with Captain Brian Esposito, who focuses mostly on running saltwater and freshwater trips in the Florida Everglades. As we sat on Brian's back porch, surrounded by cardinals and some friendly, partially trained squirrels, Brian shared with me his journey into guiding, and the ins and outs of the Florida Everglades, and how his days of surfing as a teen eventually led to him building and working on his own custom skiffs. Brian is a modern-day gladesman who's dedicated his life to learning as much as he can about these amazing waters, from scouting for fish to planning camping trips. Brian gives some great insight during this conversation. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Brian, it's great to have you on the podcast. What a beautiful day, just kind of hanging out here in your backyard. You got your squirrels and your blue jays. It's a beautiful day. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, welcome here to our home, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I want to hear all about your kind of story of how you got into guiding because I've had a lot of people over the past two years kind of point me your way and say you need to interview Brian you need to interview Brian I'd love just to hear about for you like kind of how you got into guiding and where it all began okay um so I I had a small boat company called Gladescraft um the economy was tanking around 0809 and I had to do something and uh all my friends are fishing guides I used to always fish with them on my days off and they they kind of called me the guides guide some of them would joke Mm -hmm. around and say that (laughs) and uh so I just um fell right into it you know had a a few good friends that helped me with you know gave me overflow to start and uh shared clients with me to i got a real fast start yeah how how did you get into boat building because that's not like a a, you know when you're at a high school career fair they're not normally saying and you could build boats you know (laughs) and kill brain cells no but uh (laughs) okay so we all grew up um my friends and i surfing and and fishing so we were always fixing our surfboards. Yeah. So we learned how to work with the foam and the cloth and the resin, all the components, pretty early on, and grind and sand and stuff. So how old was uh, that? Uh, you know, teenage years. You wow. know, and, you know, stuff right like that. Right here in Hollywood, or uh, yeah, I grew up in Deerfield, so okay. we surf up coast. You know, above Jupiter where the swells hit better, or you know, the wind chops down south here. So you can surf quite a bit if you have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's not Hawaii, but get out there. So anyways, so the 
the, the fiberglass stuff had a little little um little background how to work with that and then there's there's Merritt Boatyard in Pompano and I had some friends that worked there so they were you know doing pretty advanced stuff building big boats painting and all you know fairing and doing all the stuff you got to do when you build boats and um kind of a, a guy that worked there and I built a boat okay and uh kind of learned like that yeah yeah and as a kid did you do a lot of I mean obviously you did you know surfing but did you do a lot of uh fishing as well kind of in the area or when did yeah. that play in yeah i always fished my whole life since i was a little kid my dad i'd go with my dad or his friends mm. and um yeah we you know mountain streams in uh, north carolina or bass fishing in the neighborhood lakes that was a big deal uh, you know and i could ride my bike to the intercoastal and the canals and bridges around the house and um my mom would take me to the pier and i'd buy shrimp get like okay. five dozen shrimp put them in a bucket she'd drop me off and at the bridge around the corner and I'd catch something on every one of those five dozen shrimp back then. <laughs> Little snooks, snappers, jacks, everything lived under there. Every single shrimp got bit as soon as it hit the water. It was pretty neat. Yeah, so t- tell me more about, okay, the, you know, obviously there, the, there was the crash in the economy. Mm-hmm. You're building boats and you're like, man, I need to, uh, I want to get into guiding. Because that's, it's interesting to me because it's like, that's not the most, cons- considered the most stable you know, stable right. job. So it's interesting, right. like that shift, what did that look like? Um, you know, so I probably made the transition easier than most people. Cause I have great friends that helped me out. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Hurstead, Andy Thompson, people like that, just, mm-hmm. you know, very generous shared clients. I got on the, some tournaments, you know, on some tournament scenes, some charity tournaments and, uh, you meet a lot, a lot of clients that way real fast. Um, and then, you know, just word of mouth and do your best and try to build your business and, yeah, no, I think that's, uh, you know, that's really neat too, just to kind of hear about the, a lot of the guys that I've hung out with around the, the East Coast, mm-hmm. that surfing yeah. aspect of things, not not so much in the yeah. Gulf. The, the right the right coast. <laughs> yeah, the right coast. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's kind of cool to hear just about how learning to work with the surfboard materials kind of led to yeah. you being able to work with skiffs. I mean, for you, what is the significance in being able to build your own boats and I would imagine you can better understand boats and how to use them, but how, how does that kind of work out? All right. So for me building boats, I've always been real creative. So that was a huge creative outlet and it's mm-hmm. really fun to see what hull dimensions make the boat do what and hull shapes. And also when you build your own skiffs, you can really cheat. You can cheat a million different ways. You can really make the boat much, much lighter than a production boat because mm-hmm. all these production companies or boat companies half they're so handicapped could work with the public because the public is so mean. Yeah. You know, the boat can't break, can't, nothing can happen or they got to fix it. And also they get blasted on social media. They get, you know, hammered for any little thing that happens. So build them for yourself, basically. Okay. So boat companies make a huge safety factor and the boats mm-hmm. are way heavier than they might have to be. Yeah. But you can cheat a lot, build them for yourself and, uh, just make them like glorified surfboards really and they pressure ding and stuff or drop pliers they might get a little gouge but every few months i put a little putty in paint and the boat's far lighter and more responsive than most things you can buy yeah yeah Yeah. it's it's interesting because um a lot of people in fly fishing they have Mm. that satisfaction of tying their own fly and catching a fish with the fly and i mean you just take that to the next level yeah if you've hand built a skiff or a canoe or yeah. you know a surfboard that has gunnels yeah <laughs> you know uh, yeah. bigger more expensive uh time consuming learning curve and hobby yeah but it's cool you, you make canoes even you figure out what dimensions work you know does a 40 inch bottom you know it's more stable but you can't paddle it as fast or you know how the boat too short a boat doesn't seem to work good boats have to be at least you know 15 16 feet long little 12 and 13 foot boats don't work it's just mm-hmm. not enough boat you know, it seems like it will, but it's not because people weigh a certain amount and wave, you know, you have to span waves. Waves are a certain size. And so I'm a fan of like, a, you know, 16, 18 foot boats like most people, but nothing shorter. And narrow is fine because the boat really doesn't know how long it is under mm-hmm. power, whether you're pulling it or the motor, but it knows how wide it is because it's got to push through the water all yeah. that width. So, you know, the longer narrow boat works great especially when you got to pull miles and miles like in the Everglades sometimes. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, kind of your home base, right? Everglades yeah. is where you're doing most of your, yep. your guiding out of. Tell me about how you like mm-hmm. to fish the Everglades. And really, I, we believe it or not, on this podcast, we haven't talked much about the Everglades. So I'd mm-hmm. love just to hear about kind of your style of fishing there. Oh, cool. Well, it's, uh, so I forget 
maybe 1.2 or 3 million acres of the way it was. It's right there, you know, behind Miami. And uh, it's like going back in time. There's no condos, no jet skis, no, you know, even on the busiest holiday weekends, I can go out and get lost and not see another boat or hear one for days. Wow. There's so much country. It's, you know, many lifetimes to see it all once. Every mm-hmm. little pond and nook and cranny. Yeah. And so what type of, you know, setup are you bringing out there? Because I know you try to keep things really simple and efficient. Like when a typical day in the Everglades, what's the setup look like? Boat, gear? Yeah, typical day. Um, you know, I fish out of uh, a um, Spear Boat Works Everglades boat most of the time just because it gets so shallow mm-hmm. and uh, there's no limits. It still covers water fast, rides soft enough for the people to be comfortable. I can tarpon fish all the park waters. It never gets that rough there out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no limits. I can pull in six inches of water, go tarpon fishing, get around fast. Um, you know, for my fly guys or spin guys, I fish both all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really like no limits, I'd say, with that boat. Out of all the different kind of things in the Everglades, what do you enjoy targeting the most? All right, so my favorite fish is snook. In the process of snook fishing, mm-hmm. um, it always has been since I was a kid. Um, there's so many fish to fish for in the Everglades, though. You know, and it, it's surprisingly, I love, it's going to sound weird, but I love fishing for largemouth bass. Mm-hmm. It's something about, they're just a different snook. Yeah, yeah. I, th- that was something that mm-hmm. um, I was talking to Harry's son, Luke, and I was uh-huh. like, what do you think I should ask Brian? He's like, man, ask him what's his draw to the bass. Give us, because oh. <laughs> a lot of guys on the show, mm-hmm. they have, they, they like bass fishing because of what it meant in their story, because mm-hmm. it, for a lot of people, it was the first fish they fell in love with because they were a kid and they could go mm-hmm. to a pond. But yeah. for you, you've kind of maintained that love where you don't see a lot of saltwater guys spending much time and, and really you know advocating for the bass what about it draws you yeah the bass is cool he's real honest and smart but you know willingly bite so he's very readily available and uh the the pace of the bass fishing i really like it's just relax cast and feel feel the equipment feel the rod load Mm -hmm. cast whether it's a spin rod fly rod um plenty of bass down here you get lots of bites you know tons of bites um if you're looking for just stay busy in action it's all you know usually very consistent all day Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also, um, with the bass, they're a great bad weather bailout plan. Like yeah. so many times in the spring, the guys come to catch tarpon and it's really blown and it's raining, but that's the best day to bass fish. So we could either go catch no tarpon or a hundred bass. And now the peacocks have come on real strong. So we've mm-hmm. got that whole fishery here. How do yeah. you decide like on any given day, okay, you're going to the Everglades. What does that thought process look like on deciding what you're going to target and, and where you're going to go? Because there's so much. Yeah. You talked about how the, the scale, and when you look at a map, you can just see it's like, mm-hmm. man, this is a huge, huge, diverse fishery. How does how does the thought process work? Yeah, so I always try to work with the conditions, not against them. And, you know, different conditions, you know, make different species more available. I just try to, you know, some guys get hung up on the species, but I try to roll with what the day's giving you, mm-hmm. with the wind direction and the sky and the fish that might be available on that day more than others um so basically I work with the conditions uh try to sight fish if that's what the people want to do but a lot of you know sometimes you have to blind cast all day and that's fine there because that's a great option like some, yeah. sometimes in the clear water fisheries for the bonefish and the permit if it's cloudy you know and, and in high tide especially you got to go home mm-hmm. or you know just have a brutally boring day <laughs> if if you were you know talking to somebody who never fished the everglades before mm-hmm. and they came to you and they said brian i want to fish it right mm-hmm I want to do it the right way. What's the right way for, for that fishery? Well, you try to see as much as you can, as fast as you can, as many times as you can see it, because it's always changing, even year to year. And mm-hmm. every five years, it's a whole different place. Nothing stays the same for too long. Fish do this for five years, do that for five years. Right now, we're blessed to have just a really good fish population, but mm-hmm. maybe eight years ago, it was pretty bleak. So everything comes and goes. It's always cyclical there. The, uh, the freezes seem to take the fish, and the hurricanes make the fish. Absolutely, 100%. So we're coming off of Irma right now, three, four years later. Yeah. We've got lots of snook and redfish and baby tarp and triple tail. Why do you, why do you think that is? What's the thought process? I get, I know the freeze. What, what do yeah. you, how, do, how does the hurricane come in and, and play, you think? Um, well, the biologists say that the storm surges help the larvae get way back in the little ponds and way back in the mangroves where it needs to start its life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it just facilitates it getting there and just a lot more of a good start, I guess, good survivorship of that year class. Mm-hmm. And then they start growing up and doing their thing. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, yeah. With with kind of wanting to do it right, too, like a light boat, 
Yeah. Try to pull as much as you can. I mean, and have as what many else? tools as you can. So I've got three different boats. I've got uh, Hell's Bay Biscayne, which is great for, you know, anything big water, mm-hmm. general purpose boats. Great. Just doesn't get super shallow. Then I've got the mm-hmm. the Spear Everglades, which gets extremely shallow, and I can do anything in that thing. Mm-hmm. Then I've got another little homemade boat. That's kind of like a, a Ginu maybe, but canoe skiff hybrid. Yeah. Uh, no pulling tower, and it's I can it's 17 feet long, but only maybe 48 inches wide on the top side, and uh, it fits up every creek, and I can drag it over the land if I have to. That thing, it's it's four wheel drive, uh, no yeah. ba- no limits in that thing. Yeah. I, I can get out of bounds basically. Do you see a lot of mistakes that like young captains, young anglers make when going to the Everglades that that you could? help kind of cut a little bit of the learning curve mm-hmm. obviously they got to figure out the the layout themselves like yeah but what are just some like man don't do that let me go ahead and help you out here yeah yeah learn it for yourself um that's the most rewarding anyways but basically uh don't come in hot like you should always i always think you should idle for five minutes and then pull for five minutes and then fish a shoreline mm-hmm. if you run right up there wake it start pulling banging around stripping out line it's over before it started you know, the fish mostly leave, especially the big ones, and the ones that are left there aren't going to bite that good. Mm-hmm. So take five minutes to idle, take five minutes to pull, and the same thing leaving. Like, if you think the fish aren't there, don't just jump up on the shoreline and run away because yeah. there probably were tons of fish there, like you thought, you know? And, you know, take five minutes to pull out and then idle for another two or three and then, then run. Yeah. You know, and that's better for everybody, not just you. And the fish especially, they got to win more than anybody. So. And and with that stealth, like that's a big part of obviously how you fish in the in the Everglades. I mean, what are some other tips you could give on just helping people increase their stealthiness? Uh, pull very slow. Um, you know, even if you think you're pulling slow, pull slower. You know, mm-hmm. those fish feel everything. Even when you're in a canoe, you know, and you're barely displacing water, they feel. You know, watch the mullet spooking two two hundred feet away. The mullet spook first but the other fish feel you the same they just put up with you more yeah you know just go slow um don't shake when you cast don't uh don't you just be as quiet as you can on the boat don't bang things drop things you know is is that tough with like just because of how technical that fishery is with clients who maybe have never fished it before like is there anything that you do or any ways that you try to help them prepare for for that fishery uh, just drop the push pull in their head now and then when they're making two no just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but uh no um, you know, just learn as you go, and they pick it up pretty quick. They see right away what what um, they'll have success or failure, and they seem pretty. You know, they want to succeed, and they'll it'll click, and they'll be quieter. Or, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't. You know, they're older or not physically able to do things, and they, they're going to make more commotion in the boat. And that's fine. Just what it is. You know, with all the options around you, what is the the draw for you just to keep kind of focusing more and more and more on the Everglades rather than trying to spend a large amount of time in the Keys or a large amount of time in Louisiana. I mean, for you, what's so special about it? It's just, you're always peeling back the layers till like the day you quit fishing there, you'll never totally know it. And it's always changing. So, and I learn, I try to, I learn every year. Like, and sometimes I'm like, I don't even know how I did it last year. Cause I feel like I know so much more this year Yeah. and just peel the layers back and uh, just be observant. And why did this work? And what else is like this that might work the same way or the same conditions or, you know, and, Network with a couple buddies, that helps a lot, you know, because you yeah. can't see everything every day. Just And, uh, you know, don't talk to the whole world, but it's good to have a little network. That helps, too. Yeah, know? absolutely. With, is Are you one of the guys who just keeps everything in your head, or do you write stuff down? I mean, anything on, on that front? Um, I keep it all in my head. I used to uh, keep a log of all my snook catches when I was younger until maybe I was 30, say, mm-hmm. maybe 25. And I was up to, like, 20,000 and I quit, you know, I, I still have the list somewhere, but not, you know, but no, just keep it in my head, whether that's good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you, you had uh, written something on the website. I wrote it down cause I thought it was really good. You said it's been my life's work, um, to learn every nook and cranny of this vast ecosystem. What, is there a systematic approach or what, what, what does it look like to try to really learn an ecosystem like is there a systematic approach is it just obviously time on the water i mean yeah and a lot of gut feeling or what's worked in the past um you know at certain times of the year i'm trying to just find very remote spots as far up uh, creek and bay systems as i can get into the fresh water and then sometimes i'm in the wide open flats and there's so many nuances to the even a giant wide open flat there's so many ridges and lakes and 
you know, different things to make the fish do what they do. And, uh, you know, temperature and drought, both like cold temperature and drought seem to put fish in similar spots, mm-hmm. you know, um, because the cold makes them run to the deeper areas. And so a little bit deeper areas, not deep. Yeah. And then, uh, drought too, that'll put them in the deeper areas. So, so like in the backcountry areas that hold snook and will hold them good in drought and cold conditions, same spots. Mm-hmm. What's like when when you think about somebody who, you know, is a really, really great, you know, waterman from Everglades Mm -hmm. in like the the kind of generation maybe that's came before you, like what what kind of inspires you or draws you to that? Um, To to the guys that came before me? Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, I mean, I grew up watching Walker's K like everybody, you know, and Mm -hmm. you see how they do it and that just accelerates your learning curve curve because you're seeing you know I'm yeah a real visual learner not just spots but just techniques and how they move and how they do things and talk and you know the whole deal and uh i mean i've got a lot of respect for all the guys that came before me that they knew a lot and there was a lot more fish maybe maybe not i'm sure there were yeah but uh yeah i mean they definitely paved a road yeah for sure for sure i, I was curious just because i mean you know everybody that i interview has people that come before them that kind of shape them and then they're turning around and passing it to the next generation. I mean, for you, when you first really began learning the Everglades, was there somebody who really helped you through that process, like a mentor? Um, so my dad would take me there, but he didn't really pull. We had a bass boat, we'd troll motor around a little bit. And then mm-hmm. some of his buddies had saltwater boats, but we still didn't pull. So it wasn't until I could get down there with my buddies mm-hmm. at the time and start pulling around our little John boats that we had we could start to drive, you know, at 16, had a little uh, Ford, little SUV that could tow a John boat. We'd start going over there way too much. We were always, you know, over there way more than we should have been. Yeah. And uh, just trying to learn stuff. Yeah, I just I just interviewed a guy um, down in Miami, Willie, and he, he got a, his dad when he turned 16. His dad's mm-hmm. like, you want a car or you want a, a skiff? And he was right. like, I want a skiff, you know? Yeah. He loved fishing. Um, and just kind of as a, a very similar story to you in the, in the sense of just grew up in that fishery and still mm-hmm. fishes it type thing. Yeah. For you, when you look back at those years, like in what way did being, you know, 16, 17 years old with a John boat running around, you know, the Everglades, how did that shape you into to the guide that you are today? I mean, that, that was freedom there. You know, you're young and you have a boat and you're just unlimited energy. You can fish till dark every day and you know see a lot of things learn fast you're like a sponge absorbing mm-hmm. um yeah and just that much you know years and years in that same area seeing that all the areas change and over time and just seeing how that just stay in current with everything and mm-hmm. uh that's a lot of it just staying current because one shoreline might fish good for five years might not fish good for five years and then fish is good again for five years and it's just just time in the water is the main thing, I guess. Being observant. Yeah, that's yeah. that. No, I think it's 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 definitely a a really great gift to be able to have parents who are supportive in those years, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of letting kids go out and explore. And some of that I think gets lost in today's world, where I think we have some access to so much information. Every time a boat gets in an accident, every time somebody goes missing you know we all know about it yeah. and it makes parents more paranoid and yeah we had the paper charts and it was a really big deal when the first uh standard mapping satellite charts came out because then we're like oh all that's back there wow let's try to get in that and then we you know be working our way back into areas putting the the pen keeping the pen on the map where we are at the time like a pen point you know and if it rolled around then you're lost and, uh, and then, you know, these new GPSs are great. They really let you explore with it. Like you're driving around on Google Earth like a video game. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, with the John boat and the old paper charts, we got into some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And, is uh, there, I mean, what's, you know, I, I've, I've heard a lot of guys who are older who grew up fishing that way, you know, talk about obviously the GPS can become a crutch and you don't learn how to read water or explore. I mean, for you, like if you were making an argument to somebody that, hey, it's actually really good for you to to remove the technology aspect, what are they going to get from that? I mean, if you remove the technology, I mean, I think it heightens your senses a little bit, but if you don't totally lean on it, you know, it's, I think it's a good tool. There's nothing wrong with the GPS with the good mapping. And there's things I fish now that I would never would have found or had mm-hmm. the courage to go into without that, you know, and as long as you, you know, it is what it is and um, it's not going to go away. So you, and everyone else has got it. So you might as well learn how to use it, you mm-hmm. know, and use it to your advantage. And, uh, 
it makes your world a lot bigger. But still, don't totally rely on it and unplug at the same time and use your senses, you know, and your instincts out there. Yeah, is, is you know, you were talking about instincts, like developing instincts. When you look back, were, were there some mistakes that you made when you were exploring it? Like, I would imagine you've been lost a time or two and anything get, get a little sketchy. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like the old John Boots used to slide out in the turns, and you'd, you'd slide up on a uh, on a mud bank with maybe some low mangrove roots, and, and pr- pretty stuck. I remember having to rip the hatches off the John Boat one time to stand on them in the mud to get enough traction to pull the boat back in the water because the mud is so soft. Mm-hmm. So we had to destroy the boat halfway to get it out of <laughs> like the, off the mud bank. Yeah, yeah mud exactly. Shoes. With big, it was <laughs> old plywood John Boat hatches with indoor outdoor carpet. Oh man. Yeah. What, what else for you, like, when, you know, that you felt like just really important things? I would imagine safety gear, you know, being so remote. I mean, you have cell service, like. Yeah, yeah. sometimes you have cell service. Um, nowadays, I carry one of those uh, in-reaches, and I mm-hmm. make sure it's always charged and uh, test it now and then. And that's, you know, and I always, if I'm going to do something really weird and go far and way back into something, I'll tell some of my good fishing buddies, like, hey, I'm going to be here more or less, make sure I come out. Mm. And uh, so, you know, that kind of float plan and the in-reach, you know, the handhelds are pretty much useless. There's no one there to listen to you. They don't go that far. Cell phones kind of work in some areas, but. Yeah. So that's that's what I do. I always carry uh, I always carry enough water. If we get stuck, I'll be good for the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I carry some small emergency blankets. I fold up. They're five bucks. They fold up to like a wallet size, mm-hmm. you know. Um, in the, you know, in the, especially in the winter, because hypothermia can be a big deal if you get yeah. stuck overnight somewhere and it rains on you or whatever, a front comes through. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that that's all all good stuff. Um, I don't think I have any blankets. I definitely have you know first aid right. kit and yeah, and definitely uh, the water pieces. Mm-hmm. That's a no brainer. I oh, feel like. But. And in the summer, I bring a big seven foot umbrella I can put up in the rod holder if people are getting overheated or if we get stranded. You don't want to dive exposure out there if whether it's yeah. cold or too much or heat stroke. So. You know try to do that yeah absolutely if it's good with you i'd love to go into some what i call random fire questions yeah just sure. some different different stuff that um that i have here so one of them is i love to ask people what what makes somebody a great guide um you know it's it's there it's the client's day not yours you got to remember that you got to be patient you can never yell you know you never want a tense moment on the boat and uh you know everyone's different you're not going to get along with everybody you're going to mm-hmm. go along famously with people um, yeah, just, just in hard work. I mean, you know, hard work, try your hardest. And then at the end of the day, you know, you, you had a good time and whether you caught fish or not and you learned, you learned something, they saw something and the clients don't always have to catch as many fish as you think to have a great day. Yeah. 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 I think that's, I think that's easy to forget because with guides, they're mm-hmm. out there every single day. So they're, they have this huge scope of comparison, Yeah, you know, like two weeks ago, they know that mm-hmm. they did X, Y, Z. And the client, you know, he's just really excited to have caught a really big snook. He's never caught one before. And so, I mean, I think that's that's really good advice. I mean, it's even with people who are fishing with kids, it's the same way. It's like, yeah, you know, what I think is a good day and what my daughter thinks is a good day are yeah. two different things. And, I, you know, if, if my daughter's happy fishing with her dad, mm-hmm. it's a good day. But I've, in my mind, you know, it's easy just to yeah. forget that. And if, you, if it gets really slow, eat something. <laughs> that, that always, uh, you know, build boost morale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and if if things are going really well, eat something. Right, drink right. Something. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah, uh, take a minute. <laughs> yeah, we uh, me and me and Dan, uh, we we had the other day. We, we were um, out and uh, we were fishing Biscayne and everything, and we were like, okay, like you know, like I really want to catch you know a, a permit, my first like permit on fly. And we had these like Coronas, and we're like, we're not drinking a Corona until right. you know we do or whatever, and we put it put it in the boat and stuff. And like it was like 3 p.m. I had like broke off a broke the hook on a permit, and we were, we were like, oh, you know, and just had the beer sitting in there yeah. and stuff. And we were like, you know what, we just need to go ahead and just celebrate the hookup, you know, right, type right. Thing, you know, and it's, yeah. I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, like using food and being well prepared and, you know, drinking enough water. Like I definitely have fished with people too, where, you know, they just get busy and they don't yep. drink water and then they start feeling like crap later in the day. Yeah, yeah. You have to manage your clients, you know, cause they're not used to that and you got to know when they're going to be in trouble or not before they are. And, uh, especially in a tournament you got to make that guy last you got to know when to tell him to eat drink sit down you know you gotta you gotta kind of manage them basically 
Yeah. How, how does, you know, how does the, the shifting from, you know, into a tournament for you, what does that process look like? Cause everybody's a little different. So I don't fish tons of tournaments. I, mm -hmm. I did the gold cup for like six years with Dave Preston. He's a great angler and he just won it actually last year, yeah. you know, with a new guide. So that's like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's I, like an awkward text message from him. Yeah. 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 Hey, man. But, uh, but tournaments are fun, especially when you're doing good and the fishing's good. When the, when the weather's bad, the fishing's bad and you just have to go fish for tarp and say like in the gold cup, that's mm -hmm. a grindy week. But if, if you're, you know, weather's good, fishing's good and it's fun, you know, and it, you're at a heightened level of kind of awareness and effort. And that's fun too, to kind of bring it up to that level. Yeah. And you talked about managing the client, like just helping to remind them water, rest, that yeah. type of thing. But what, what does it look like to try to manage yourself? Cause I know there's a lot of self-discipline and management that, that you put into what you do. Yeah. So the time is like the one thing you can sort of control, right? So, um, you know, with, with the South Florida, the way the fishing works here, there's always drive time somewhere. So I limit the boat time to eight hours you have to or you have no life it's mm -hmm. still like going to be a 12-hour day at the end of it with driving and clean up and prep and mm -hmm. so i have to limit the time in the boat to eight hours you know and uh to have a good home life and actually have a life too and that's mm -hmm. enough if you know if you haven't caught them all in eight hours you know you're probably not gonna or you know yeah you've either had your fill and if it's not good you want to come in anyways you're so yeah, yeah, and that's like um, I know somebody who's a owner operator of a Chick Fil A, and he's like, if we can't get it done in six days, then right. we shouldn't be in business. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think you know, there's obviously times where you know you're in a circumstance with friends or a certain place, and you really want to grind it out and do mm -hmm. something really big. But you know, I think back to the client piece too. It's like, it's it's you know, they're probably not used to being in the sun that long on their yeah. feet that long. You know, depending on. What they do for a living yeah and we have to sleep a lot too eight hours of sleep super important you know mm -hmm. if you get home and cleaned up it's hour 12 13 you got to go to sleep at hour 16 you got to really manage your time you know mm -hmm. and have a, at least a few hours of home life you know yeah. to make it all work yeah for you have you always been in really good shape and always taken that really serious yeah i try to you know work out somewhat stay i mountain bike a lot when i can and uh you know just maybe naturally blessed with metabolism and but mm -hmm. i do try to stay healthy and very aware of if I get an ache and pain, I've got to rehab it before it turns into something big and then I can't work. So, mm -hmm. so I'm all, you know, very aware of that. And that I, for me, like it's, you know, a lot of the guys that I've met that have been shaped by surf culture seem like they're just in better shape. Yeah. We, you know, we grew up moving and breathing and, and paddling and nothing gets you in shape like surfing, you know, the paddling and the breathing and, you know, all the stuff you mm -hmm. got to do. And, you know, you're, that's a great way to stay in shape. Do you, sure. do you still surf a little bit or not so much anymore since I had a, a shoulder operation, yeah. I'm feeling good now, but I still don't do it. Plus, you know, you, no time, you know, you work so much and then when you're not working, there's always something to do. And I moved a little more South where the waves aren't as good. So yeah, it's basically not so much anymore, but I'd like to do it, you know, pick it back up again. Yeah. 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 What about camping? Do you ever do camping trips in the Everglades? Yeah. I've camped a lot over time, you know, with my friends and uh, now sometimes I'll camp down there overnight just when I'm doing charters now and then mm -hmm. just to not drive back and forth and be able to put in a little more of a day. And especially when I go to the no motor zones and stuff, they're a bigger day and yeah. you know, it's hard to get all that done sometimes in eight hours. So I'll definitely camp down there and some of my buddies do it too. And you know, yeah. it's nice. If somebody wants to plan a camping trip, like what's some, some things they need to consider and, and do? Well, uh, you can all, you can wilderness camp on the beaches of the Cheekies. You just definitely want to watch the weather. You don't want to be on the Cape Sable beach in a cold front or a West wind. That's the, lots of people's boats get buried. Um, and you, you can also just keep it simple and, and camp at the Flamingo Marina or, you know, over by Chuck Lusky somewhere, you know, have a bathroom in a store and resources. Yeah. Well, well, tell me more about the Cheekies because that's something I haven't done that, that I'd like to do. It sounds, yeah. it sounds and looks really cool. I mean, how do you do that? Well, D don't go out with a West wind. Don't sink your boat. Yeah. That would be good. Yeah. Or the, the Cheekies, they're more in the bays where it's protected, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah. So, uh, no dirt, no raccoons. That's cheeky camping. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, you're not supposed to nail to anything. So bring rope or twine to tie your tent down. But, um, yeah, but there, it's nice. It's, it's, uh, you're, you're in a little small spot. You can't roam around and range around on mm -hmm. land, like on the beach or at the campground, but, but it's neat. You're right there on the water. The boat's right at your feet tied up all night. You yeah. can hear the waves lapping and you know, the porpoises come in at night and stuff and the snook pop in the bushes behind you. It's really cool. The place kind of comes alive at night. We're never out there to see it, but it gets very loud at night sometimes. Um, fish busting and moving. You know? Yeah, I was I was curious if there was any night fishing in the Everglades. I mean, obviously you don't have lights and dock lights and stuff, but yeah, I know there's probably a whole world of it, and then some people do it, but you know it just doesn't fit the guiding schedule. You got to keep a schedule. Yeah, and uh, plus it, you know, it's 
I just feel like a channel marker seeking missile at night. Like I just, <laughs> I, you know, running around at night. You yeah. Know, it's just, uh, yeah, something's going to happen one day. Well, I, I was, I was also kind of curious on like, you know, obviously Everglades is known for having a lot of insects. Yeah. Oh yeah. What's, what's, what's the, what's the, the protocol there? Um, just so in the half the year, the bugs are bad. Launch the boat as quick as you can. Don't even try to put on the bug spray in the parking lot. Cause you're just prolonging everything. Mm-hmm. Just get out of the car, jump on the boat and go. And then when you're on the water, there's really no bugs in the daytime, just the parking lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, sometimes you, you hook the mangroves, you go in to get your uh, fly out, and then you, you're stuck with the bugs. you got to go run the boat to get rid of them, yeah. you know, and come back or go somewhere <laughs> else. And they're, they're, they, they, can, they can run the day a little bit, but it's usually not too bad. Another question I had was, you know, as somebody who really likes the bass fish, what do yeah. you feel like saltwater guides could learn from the bass fishing world? You know, the bass guys, when they get on the boat, they are so efficient and so fast and cover water so accurately and good like they make a million casts a minute you know they're very disciplined mm. you know they're really good casters bass guys we're shoreline casting or sight fishing if i hear i got a bass guy coming we're, he's going to be on the money yeah you know yeah you, you've mentioned discipline a few times how, how does being a really disciplined person play out in being an angler or a captain well you gotta you know a lot of th- there's a lot of times when like nothing's happening so you gotta mentally overcome the slow times or boring times or you know times lots of times learning most of the things aren't working out you know you gotta just you know be patient and maybe patience and discipline are sort of the same thing yeah yeah i could definitely see that that those being at least if not the same thing very related with a lot of overlap yeah with um you know one of the things that's always interesting like when i've been around bass guys is they're very like systematic and in, mm-hmm. in what they're doing when they're searching for fish you know, oh, yeah. they're really good at locating fish even though they have all the technology to do so oh yeah pattern fishing's huge even in salt water on the flats and you know like you know it's a little cool a little hot they're going to be a little this depth or that depth or mm-hmm. you know sometimes everything's perfect they're real shallow and they're tailing or they want to be on a point of current or you know if it's cold they want to be out of the current mm-hmm. you know what i mean you're more in the coves trying to see when if it's cold sight fishing or and in the summer they're not going to be in that little shallow cove they're going to be out on the point where there's current yeah. So you always want to make a pattern, basically. When you're in day. an area like, you know, I know that you recently took a trip to Homosassa, yeah. and it's like an area you're not as familiar with. How do you, like, try to systematically locate fish? I mean, without, I guess, giving away too much black magic. Uh, I mean, I have an idea what the the place looks like by looking at a map ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, especially over there, idle and idle and idle. <laughs> Just trim up and idle. Don't. I was scared yeah. to death over there. It, it was cool. There's so much country with nobody in it and tons of fish. Just yeah. the place protects itself. Like as soon as it's low enough to uh, start sight fishing, it's you're pulling over rocks and ridges, and it, mm-hmm. it's not oyster bars you're looking at. It's like rock ridges sticking mm-hmm. out of the water. Like it's oyster bars are soft, really, when you hit them. Those things are hard. So yeah, you know, we'll go slow, we'll idle a lot. Yeah, you know? all the guys over there in Homosassa are just like they've just in their mind have mentally grasped that they're gonna lose lower units, and yeah. it's almost like talking to them. It's like it's it's not even the same fear that I think a lot of people have around the rest of the state. No, here you just go faster and get out of whatever's going on. Unless you're in the lower keys, there's some rock down there. Mm-hmm. But uh, even Chuck, this, you know, Chuck Lulewski's benign now compared to uh, Homosasa. Like oyster bars literally are soft. You can yeah. hit them all day long. Nothing really happens. Those rock ledges and ridges over there are no joke. Yeah, yeah. for sure. With, uh, you know, it's always interesting being with people too, who they guide the waters that they kind of grew up fishing mm-hmm. on and cut their teeth on. But for you, has there been any places or destination trips that you feel like were really amazing and maybe gave you some sort of big takeaway? Um, the Bahamas are always super fun. I love bone fishing as much as anything, good bone fishing, but I w- had the opportunity to go to Cuba maybe five years ago mm-hmm. or six years ago. And that was really cool. Just going back, it's going back in time. Literally it's the fifties, mm-hmm. you know, on the water and on the land. Um, there were so many mutton snappers in the finger channels that, after a while, all we wanted to do was jig the finger channels for mutton snappers. Like we didn't care about the tarpon and the permit and all the stuff around. Yeah, because the mutton snapper fishing was so good, and they were on the flats too, somewhat. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, we saw some you know mutton snapper you know here and there. Yeah, kind of driving around. It's a beautiful, really cool fish for sure. Yeah, but just so that's how the keys and Biscayne were for sure before you know, overfished, just all the channels had a million muttons. Like you could just look down in Cuba floating over the channels and see the muttons scooting from every rock and sea fan. And you know, and they're smart too. You drift the channel once you catch them, you drift it twice, you don't catch them. They're, they're smart. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's pretty neat. For somebody who maybe doesn't know much about the Everglades, what are some of those moments that happen 
or times of year things that you really live for? I mean, it's always fun, nice to know that you're in the place at the right time and you're seeing something you're probably never going to see again. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, suck it up because no matter how much you try to plan to do, find that again, you may not find it. Yeah. Whether it's a shrimp, shrimp hatches, worm hatches, that's easier stuff to predict. But sometimes you just run into areas just full of fish. There's bait. It's it's lo- full of low-hanging fruit, basically, yeah. you know. And you, you, it's uh, just to have your way with them and, you know, leave them bite and just go do something else. But any, any of those moments that like stick out to you and thinking back, like just you pull up somewhere and there's a hundred snooks somewhere. Or... So one time just out of high school, my buddy had had uh, his grandparents had a place over in Inglewood, Florida. Mm-hmm. And we were over there. We, we, we went wade fishing on this one flat by this one big bridge, whatever it was before dark one night. And the whole flat erupted in exploding snook like an hour before dark. It was literally everywhere exploding snook in every direction as far as you could see on this one flat and that was being in the just luckily in the right place at the right time but that's as good as something as you could just luck into yeah you know that was pretty neat to see that and it didn't happen the next night yeah. <laughs> so and inglewood looks a lot different now probably yeah. than it did back then. i haven't been back since but i'm sure it does <laughs> yeah don't go then yeah, <laughs> yeah. right I know that you you know with with trying to keep things really lightweight and really simple what what are some some you know kind of essential things that you want to take fishing tackle wise to make sure that you're ready for whatever how do you keep it simple uh you know just um so basically you could just have a three inch paddle tail jig of whatever brand you like on a eighth ounce lead head and never fish anything else catch everything in the park every day all day mm-hmm. um but it, you know it's nice to throw topwater plugs and different things to get better bites or mm-hmm. appeal to different size fish um you know flies keep it pretty simple i just have uh either black or white flies or dark brown or white flies for the Everglades more or less. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, the muddy water, you want the fly to stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, bone fishing, all my flies are tan. It's the same fly, different weights, same yeah. fly. Just keep it simple. Do you have um, like different rods rigged up for different scenarios at all time in the Everglades? Like are you pretty much always have a paddle tail on and just ready to pitch to something if you need to i mean yeah yeah that's like a go-to whether it's on a weedless worm hook or a jig head or mm-hmm. you know um it's it's low maintenance everybody fit you can just reel it in and fish bite it better than anything you don't have to jig it and worry about retrieving yeah. cadence just wind it in medium and hang on and uh yeah you know but like for the tarpon fishing have gotten away from treble hooks totally it's you break so many off it's not fair to leave them in the fish yeah you know those big old fish so you, you jump off a lot more but i've gotten away from treble hooks for tarpon yeah. fishing 100 percent you know, I feel like that's fair to them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's been, you know, I haven't, I didn't grow up tarpon fishing. Yeah. And so that's just been something that it seems to be like at a place where it's becoming pretty much the norm. Yeah. And the plastics have come along so much lately that, you know, Oh yeah. They're great for you. Let's create a scenario here. Let's say that you've had a day on the water where everything's changed. Like just one of those days where you just, you had a rough day on the water, you're coming back home and you're trying to get ready for day two. How are you trying to come up with a game plan and set yourself up to, to bounce back? Well, um, you know, you always, when you start the fishing day, you always have a preconceived notion of what you might do, mm-hmm. you know, or how things might look, but sometimes you get there and everything's different. The wind's not like you thought or there's a huge rain cloud all to the east and you got to go to the west and figure out a whole new game plan. So mm-hmm. you kind of always want to have something else in the back of your head, or even while you're in good fishing, you got to be thinking what's my next move. Cause it's, it's going to be the next move sooner or later. You want to be stumbling around looking, you know, like, you know, what's going on. So, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but it's always good to have a game plan, but be flexible in a second. Cause things change quick, you know, especially if you're sight fishing with light yeah. or this or that, or do, do you, do you find yourself like, uh, if you had to rate yourself on a spectrum, do you feel like you will pull out of a situation a little faster than most people? Or do you give it a little more time? Cause that's one of the things that's interesting about the Everglades too. If like, if you're, if you're going way back in somewhere, for instance, and it's not going on, it's a big commitment sometimes to get out. Like, I mean, I usually know in a second, as soon as you shut the boat, look around, you either know it's game on or not just to feel you get why, you know, what you're seeing in the water immediately mm-hmm. or how it feels or smells or, you know, you, you kind of get a feeling if you start pulling and you're not seeing things moving around, like you thought you're like, Oh man. And you get it pretty quick, you know, pretty mm-hmm. quick, usually just because doing it so much and so seeing the same areas for so many hundreds of days yeah. you just get a quick pretty quick intuition and you know i do pull some stuff out if i really believe they're there somewhere they're just i'm not quite in the right zone or mm-hmm. usually you're probably not like you know they're usually always you're always within a mile of a pile i say <laughs> like they're there somewhere you just not where you thought they were you know you could be a eighth of a mile from a lot of fish and you don't know it mm-hmm. unless they're showing somehow yeah yeah yeah, I, I was curious too. Like, um, for you, when you look back at your your life, 
what do you feel like was most shaping in your life as a guide? Um, I gotta think about this one for a minute. Just, uh, you know, tr trying to, um, net network with, you know, a few people that are key and you mm -hmm. can trust. And, uh, it also helps in works bouncing around because you need, you know, enough buddies that when works bouncing around, it comes your way too when they're booked mm -hmm. and then you give it back to them when they're, uh, you know, when you're booked. Yeah, just just having a um, you know, good work ethic, but still keeping it all in perspective. Like, there's some people that fish sun up to sundown, and that's very cool if they want to do it. But that's not um, me, and sustainable. What I feel like is sustainable for life. So, work as hard as you can for those hours you're in the boat, and give it all, and come in. You know, uh, you know. What's the story behind? I know you got in a boat accident this past year. Could you give us the story on that? All right. So, I'll, okay, I'll tell you. A good boat accident story. So um, a good buddy of mine, he's a client also, Julian Robertson. We were a long time ago pulling around the no motor zone and we pulled right, I was pulling fast to get across the bay and we pulled right into a crocodile laying on the bottom that we never saw. And so the crocodile stood up, the boat was thrown in the air, the crocodile bit the boat and shook it. He um, put three holes in the wood hull, wow. ripped the rub rail down in the bow and uh, my buddy Julian fell out of the boat and on the, the tail side of the crocodile. Holy cow. We, we had T-boned him and he fell onto the tail and his legs got stuck in the mud. So he's trying to pull himself in. The crocodile shaking the boat and hissing. I'm on the pulling tower just trying to hang on. Yeah. So Julian finally frees his legs, jumps in the boat, and tries to run back where I'm at and get on the pulling tower with me. <laughs> and that's just, <laughs> oh. you know. So anyways, we I backed up and the croc was pissed and we were a little shaken up but uh everything worked out we pulled over to the bank and inspected the boat and we weren't gonna sink so we just kept fishing wow do you yeah. have like photos of the teeth marks or anything i do i've got them in a yeah, album yeah. somewhere yep yeah if, if if you can find those i'll put those in the blog post that'd be a really cool addition but um, yeah so there's never been a documented croc attack in the state of florida at that time and i think there's only one now it was in a residential canal in miami just a year or two ago so anyway that wasn't a documented attack and it wasn't really a malicious attack but we did get bit yeah, you yeah, know? for sure. I mean, it, you know, yeah. what are the what are the chances to just pull right over? On I mean, top we were pulling fast him, and we yeah. t-boned him. He was mad, you know. <laughs> yeah, wedged him to the bottom in a foot and a half of water, you know. Are Are there any other great stories you have of like certain memorable moments when you think back to the Everglades? Like, if we were going to create a, a five minute, you know, video of Brian's life and you could somehow go back and just capture that moment what what's you know for you like the most special moment you've had out there yeah just i don't know about the most special but just you know tons of times with friends out there and then times with good clients and sometimes it's just getting that fish in there where it's just clicking and it's yeah you know, it's coming to you easy and it's magical and then lots of times you grind but but uh i'm trying to think of one magical moment but it all kind of blends together just good good times with lots of friends and lots of fish and it's just a cool place to have down there and knowing mm -hmm. you, you have that there you know and it's it's going to be you know, the way it is, hopefully for a long time, and people are protecting it, and uh, that's that's nice to know. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of great conversation around conservation with the Everglades, and we've seen a lot of momentum, and we've seen social media and the internet and videos and photography used really well to promote that special place that mm -hmm. I think a lot of people just, it's an intimidating place, and so you have a lot of Floridians who've never been there, never fished there, never done anything around it so i mean I, I think that that's one of the things too that's been really cool with different groups like captains for clean water and and other groups that kind of focus on conservation is helping also just engage people who maybe haven't had the chance to see that yet yeah yeah for sure education you know and the, and the next generation coming they got to be into it or they're not going to protect it that's mm -hmm. important and you know most of the state's losing grass and we're actually growing grass right now so that's a good sign mm -hmm. you know and we're not getting the red tide so bad down there and we're our fish populations are way up so we're doing good we just got to keep the ball rolling and keep you know getting more water to come mm -hmm. down and getting the clean water and you know, try it. and around the state though it's all one big ball of wax we need to grow grass back and all these other estuaries and and so many people living around them and so much you know exposure to boats and boat noise mm -hmm. there's got and you know so many people move to florida every day it's yeah you know like i just heard uh, the piece in the Mayaka river they're running airboat tours up and down there now waking the banks all day long every day making noise and that's that's not good for anything yeah you know, so it's it's all the estuaries have their deal but the everglades are doing good right now as good as any of them are that i know of yeah it's definitely concerning like there's the number of people moving to florida and just you know yeah will we do things correctly with population growth and everything mm -hmm. um 
I, I was curious too. So one of the things that, you know, a, a mutual friend, Harry, he talks about being a great angler is kind of like a pie. It's made up of a bunch of little pieces right. and you got, you know, like having good eyes and you got your casting and you got, you know, all these little pieces to a pie. Mm -hmm. Like when you think about somebody being a great angler to you, what are some of those pieces that maybe get overlooked? Yeah. Like, um, you know, maybe using different tackle types, like spin fishing, a lot of, you know, plug fishing. Plug fishing is kind of like a dying art. Not a lot of guys are doing it, especially in the salt. And that was a huge thing, especially in South Florida, the mm -hmm. Met tournament, all that stuff. And, um, yeah, different tackle, different, seeing different areas of the world and being just well-rounded and, you know, having fished offshore, having mm -hmm. fished in backcountry puddles in the freshwater here and there. And maybe just, a, you know, being well-rounded and uh, traveled maybe, mm. seasoned, you know, a lot of, you know, getting out there and really doing it yourself and learning, you know, some stuff. If you could go back to yourself, and this is my last question, but if you could go back to yourself when you were a kid and you were putting in the John boat and the Everglades and you could give yourself some advice, life advice, yeah, what, what would that be? Yeah, no, nothing's either as good or as bad as you think it is, you know. Uh, just put more money in the market earlier, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be pulling anymore. Yeah. No, but, uh, um, God dang, just have fun, man. Don't take everything so serious. You know, life's always going to kind of, you know, go up and down. Just, um, you know, it's going to, if you're down, it's going to be good again. Just, you know, just take it easy, have a good time, and, uh, you know, it goes by pretty quick. Yeah, and uh, definitely take enough time for yourself. You get caught up working a lot, you, you need some time for yourself too, mm -hmm. you know. You, know, you got to always be the angler. Even, you know, no matter how much you guide, you still oh. got to, like, want to be the angler. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. And still, I mean, you hear a lot of guys talk about having a hard time fighting to still love it, you know, just because it's their job and right. You hear it. Yep. I'm not at first. I didn't want a guy because I thought it might ruin what I really like to do, but it hasn't. As soon as I'm off for two days, three days, I want to go fishing, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, and I still take a few casts on the boat when the guys are eating lunch or over their head, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> catch enough fish. <laughs> um, I, I probably don't personally need to ever reel in a big tarpon again, but I, but I love guiding to them. Yeah. You know, a whole lot. So, well, I really appreciate just allowing us to come over and hang out today. And you got a beautiful home. And yeah, uh, thank you. Really appreciate all the insight and time that you shared today. Yeah. Thanks for choosing me and having me. And it's been great, great doing this. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.